and welcome to the New Books Network. This is a Literary Studies podcast, and I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, I will be speaking with uh, Dr. Daniel Moran about his recent publication, Creating Flannery O'Connor, Her Critics, Her Publishers, Her Readers. Welcome, uh, Dr. Moran, and uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So before we start talking about your book, do you mind if uh, you tell us just a little bit, just a couple of words about yourself, where you teach, what you teach, where where are you now, and where have you been? Sure. Um, I uh, actually got my undergraduate and my, my master's degree in English from Rutgers, um, and then I actually got my PhD in history from Drew University. So this book is kind of a, uh, a confluence of those two things, of literary studies and and the history of the book. Um, I've taught high school for a, a long time. I taught at Rutgers in the English department for a while, uh, 20th century literature. And now I'm teaching at Monmouth, and I teach um, Western Civ, and I teach a course about empires in history. Uh, well, this connection between history and literature really sounds very, very interesting. So what what's, um advantage of uh, having access to both fields, history and literature? Um, that's a great question. I didn't realize there'd be a great uh, advantage when I started. Okay. Um, the, the nice thing is that when I when I started working on the book and I knew I wanted to write about O'Connor, I knew I didn't want to write another book about you know what the stories mean or a literary analysis or something like that. I wanted to look at her from a new angle. And all of my um, training to get my doctorate in history, I learned a lot about the history of the book. So I thought that was a really cool combination to take a writer I, I loved for a long time and, and was really familiar with and then apply a whole new way of thinking about her that I learned um, in graduate school. So they came together and it made me appreciate um, her in a different way and um, taught me a lot about how um, the writers I love and the writers everybody loves, um, their reputations get formed not just by their books themselves, but by all these other factors. And why Flannery O'Connor, if I can ask that question? Yeah, sure. Um, well, actually, this, this started as, as my dissertation and kind of got revised into the book, but um, I knew that I wanted to write about um, the reception of an author, because when I started graduate school, I learned a lot about book history, and that was really fascinating to me. I knew that books had a history, but I didn't realize how interesting of a field that was. So... Um, I uh, I always liked O'Connor, and there were other writers I thought of as well. Um, I actually originally wanted to write about um, Flannery O'Connor in America and G.K. Chesterton in uh, England, and uh, somebody advised me, pick one. Okay. <laughs> somebody, and I said, no, 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 I can do both. And, and, and the, in hindsight, that was great advice because the person said, you're going to get swamped. Pick one and, and narrow on that, and I did. Um, but I always liked O'Connor, and uh, I, I, you know, she pops up in my head all the time. And uh, she just seems somebody that was really good for this kind of experiment um, because she excites a lot of strong opinions. And um, she was very controversial in her day. She's still controversial now. So she seemed like somebody, and also not totally, totally mainstream like Mark Twain or Faulkner or, or, or you know Shakespeare or Joyce. So she seemed manageable too. So um, you trace this connection between uh, literature and history in your research as well. And um, in the introduction part, you mentioned that this book is less a work of literary criticism that uh, of book history and cultural analysis. Would you elaborate a little bit on this approach that you undertook to create a portrait of, of Flannery O'Connor and for, for contemporary readers? 
Sure. I had a, I had a couple things um, percolating in the back of my mind. You know, one of them was um, I read a book by John Rodden called uh, um, the. It was about. I'm sorry. It was. Oh, we can edit this out. Um, it was politics. Um, the politics of literary reputation. Mm-hmm. The politics of literary reputation. Sorry. And it was about how George Orwell's reputation was formed. And I had never read a book like that, and that really stuck in the back of my head. So I kept reading O'Connor, reading other things, and then I started learning about the initial reception of the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now that's our great American novel about race and slavery. But it wasn't so when it was first released. So that struck me as very strange. I said, how could people not see this? And it's not that they weren't as smart as we are or something. You know, what is it about how books are received when they're first published? So that was kind of in my head. And also, uh, you know, we've all gone on Amazon or Goodreads and seen, you know, one-star reviews of books that we love. And um, a lot of times we think, well, how could someone not see this? You know, I love this book. How could other people not love this book? So I had all these things percolating in my mind. And then when I started doing research on how O'Connor was initially reviewed in 1952 when Wise Blood came out, I couldn't believe how there was a, this great gulf and absence of people noting the Catholic themes of the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell you, everyone says, oh, she's our great Southern Catholic writer. But nobody knew this in 1952. Now, it's easy to sit on a mountaintop and say, well, now we're smarter than they were. But th- that can't be right. So I started to investigate what it was about her initial reception and how her reception changed. And it was fascinating to see that the books didn't change, but the readers did. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. My book is an attempt to kind of trace um, how did those readers change during the course of O'Connor's career and what is her reputation like now? And how does a writer's reputation get created? It's not, it's not just because the books are good um, or because the books are X or the books are Y. There's a lot of factors that go into how we think about writers, whether we're aware of them or not. And I thought O'Connor was a really good test case of that. Right. So um, I find this very interesting, this idea about that books don't change, but readers do. Right. Yeah. And how it um, it is reflected in critical reviews that books uh, sometimes receive. So I imagined that uh, you had to, uh, to to manage a lot of material while researching this area, right. uh, how, how readers change. So what were those primary sources that were you using? What, what were those uh, materials? materials that you were um, using for your research to, to well, trace the, this change of readers. Right. Well, to trace the change of readers, you know, there, 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 um, there's a great anthology of some of her original reviews. So I got to use that, mm-hmm. but a lot of the time was spent in the stacks of libraries mm-hmm. going through back issues of common wheel and the Atlantic and things like that. Um, and finding, you know, obscure periodicals and things in addition to things like time and newsweek. And what I would do is I would, um, I would read, say, you know, as many of the original reviews of A Good Man is Hard to Find that I can get my hands on, and I would start noticing themes in them. And I approach them as if they were a novel in themselves. You know, what, what's, what's the plot? What are the themes? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the issues here? And then you start to see how, how these themes develop. Um, before I did that for each book, I really had no idea how it would turn out. Um, and But it ended up telling a story as I traced it all the way through until I did the the, the last, the second to last chapter, you know, was about Goodreads mm-hmm. and online reviews, and I started to read those. So, um, a lot, lot of time spent in library basements. Mm-hmm. I see, I see. So, and probably um, uh, the uh, literary criticism terminology changed over time as well. Yeah. And, and uh, did that factor somehow influence the perception of the book? No. Um, well, I didn't. I didn't so much read 
I didn't read what we would call, you know, um, theorists mm-hmm. when I did the research mm-hmm. for the book. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to know how she was reviewed in the popular press, mm-hmm. but I did go through a lot of little magazines and things like that. And, you know, you could, you could definitely see that as, as time went on, um, you know, more and more theorists tried to try to pigeonhole her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she keeps resisting it, and that's mm-hmm. why I think she's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so probably the perception of, so to speak, uh, popular culture readers and the perception of the critics or professionals would right. be would be different in this in this context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what was interesting though was that when I went and read the thousands and thousands of reviews of her on Goodreads. Um, I found that some things hadn't changed at all, I see. Okay. and some things had changed dramatically. Uh, because that was that was, if I could jump ahead a little bit, that was a big challenge. Was I did all this research to see what quote unquote professional readers thought of her, mm-hmm. so what critics and professors and other authors and things uh, thought about her. But I said to myself, "What about just regular people who like to read and <laughs> people that like to you know curl up with a book? What, what do they think about her?" And then I said to myself, "Well, how am I going to learn that?" And one day I was in my car and I was at a red light and I'm like, Goodreads, I'll go on Goodreads. And so there were about 4,000 reviews I went through and cataloged mm-hmm. and, wow. and, and started to see what changed and what hadn't. And that was, that was um, exhausting, but it was really uh, illuminating. What are those features that remain the same? Um, that there's still definitely people pick up O'Connor's books and think that they are um, documentaries or travelogues about the South. You see a lot of bias in the reviews um, from people, usually in the North, who write about these books as if they are nonfiction, mm-hmm. as if, oh, that's the way everyone is in the South. Everyone's a racist, and um, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of uh, murderers walking around with no shirt on, and uh, people are ignorant, and they'll believe things, and O'Connor totally resisted that. She was writing about universal themes, you know, but that's still there. You still see, you can go on this morning and see people on good read saying uh you know this this reminds me to never go south of the mason dixon line i mean that's still there and that was there in the, in the 50s when wise blood came out do these uh, features that um remain the same um have something to do with the rules of notice that you mentioned in your book right, mm-hmm. right. well rules of notice is a phrase i got from uh, peter rabinowitz who wrote a terrific book about um his theories about reading called before reading mm-hmm. and he writes about how when readers approach a text, there's so much information. They have to make sense of what's, what's, what's in front of them. So um, it's reader response, right? So he says, uh, you know, if, if somebody walks into a room, you know that's important. If uh, the title is something like The Sun Also Rises, that tells you how to read it. It's about how you make sense of a book. And a great example of that is a mystery novel. So when you're reading a mystery novel, you know that everything – either is a clue or could be a clue, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're told that a character is is left-handed, you file that away and maybe that'll come up later on, right? Um, But it's not true just for mystery novels. It's true for any novel, right? So what I did was, I thought that was really interesting. And so what I did was I applied those rules of notice to the critics. So I said, well, what did they notice? What did they think was worthy of notice Mm -hmm. when they wrote about Flannery O'Connor? And uh, of course, you know, in 2014, 2015, when I'm writing this, I think that the original reviews of Wise Blood and The Violent Bared Away and things like that, that all those critics are going to notice that, you know, she's, she's got these really, really um, uh, extensive, deep Catholic themes and about, you know, the presence of God in everyday lives and things. And nobody noticed it. It was shocking. Um, the original critics were fixated on three things how old she was, mm-hmm. um, 
that she was a woman, mm-hmm. which shocks them, and and, and uh, where she was from. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of funny. Like they they missed they missed the entire faith life, which informed every single sentence she ever wrote. Um, so that's what they thought was worthy of notice, mm-hmm. and that kind of snowballed for a while. So why do you think they uh, paid attention to those particular things? Is it somehow connected with that old school of literary criticism, or maybe some yeah. other factors like I don't know, uh, maybe social factors or racial factors? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I wish actually in the new reviews there was in the old reviews there were more criticism. A lot of times there wasn't any criticism, and I think um, this is going to sound uh, uh, supercilious, but it, it's almost like they didn't know what to do with her. Oh, <laughs> I mean, um, when you when you have to review, uh, you know, um, Elmer Gantry, mm-hmm. you know what to do with that book, or, or you know, uh, or The Jungle, or any of those other books like that. Um, a book that has an axe to grind, but they couldn't find her axe. And they, they kind of didn't know what to do with somebody like Hazel Motes. And so they said other things about it. There, a lot of critics, um, they just retold the story. Mm-hmm. So the things that were supposed to be shocking in the novel, you know, when Hazel blinds himself and wraps barbed wire around himself, they just wrote about that, but not not about why it was in there or anything. So I think that they kind of filled up their column inches in the newspapers um, by writing about everything except the book itself. Mm-hmm. So uh, had the original reviewers uh, focused on some different points, probably our reading today of her would be different. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think eventually people came around. That's the part about the book covers. Mm-hmm. You know, now, mm-hmm. you know, to see a church on a Flannery O'Connor cover or something, right. it's expected, you know. Um, it would be like seeing, you know, the skyline of New York and the Great Gatsby or something. But That wasn't always the case, and that's the part in the book about the covers I talk about. Yeah, yeah. That that was a very interesting part where you provide uh, different uh, book covers for uh, for her for for her works. How how did that factor influence the perception of O'Connor in general? Right. Well, there's um, you know, Jean Genet has a, has a book called Paratexts, and it's about all of the things you bring to your reading of a book mm-hmm. that influence your experience with it, right? And it's things like the cover and the binding and the way it's marketed and things like that. And we all tell ourselves that you can't judge a book by its cover. Right. Right? We're told that from time to time we're little. But we do it all the time. Like, you know, you and I, we go to bookstores and you pick up a book. Oh, isn't this a great cover? So I knew that was something uh, that was going on. But when I started researching the actual publication of Wise Blood, I saw that the first cover just had these, these strange concentric rings around the words Wise Blood. And I thought, well, that's odd. And then you start looking at the paperbacks, and you could see that as the book uh, went through its publishing history, um, it took a long time for anyone to even acknowledge from the publisher what the book was really about. And it was marketed as a wacky comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, as, uh, there's one that says on the title, um, you know, a searching novel of sin and redemption. Mm-hmm. And there's another one that says uh, a story about sin in a small southern town. And that's in the book I say, imagine how disappointed the people were when they found out the sin was blasphemy. <laughs> they wanted a more salacious sin. So it was sold in that way. But now, you know, there, now there's, um, you can see an image of a cross on the cover. Mm-hmm. I show the picture of um, Roxana Bikadorov's cover, which I just love, with, with a picture of, you know, the sacred heart wrapped in barbed wire. So now we expect those covers. But that wasn't always the case. And I think it was because um, publishers at least until Robert Drew came around, found her a hard sell. Mm-hmm. And it's the, same thing happened, it's the same thing that happened when John Huston made his film. I mean, people said it was the least commercial film ever made. So um, publishers know how to market a book like, 
the girl on the train or something. But it's really hard to market wise blood. How do you get that into readers' hands? So sometimes they had to kind of bend the truth about the book. It's, oh, it's about this guy in the South who wanders around and has these wacky adventures. But if that's the kind of book you think it is, you get to the end and it's a much different experience. <laughs> so book covers changed and the reputation of Flannery O'Connor changed and she somehow, sure. her, her reputation changed from the reputation of a um, Southern female writer to uh, one of the uh, great American writers and uh, who yeah. uh, talks about some universal topics. So how did that uh, change uh, occur? Um, again, is it due to the rules of notice? Is it due to... Uh, um, critical uh, reviews, or uh, there was some other factor that uh, somehow contributed to this change? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Because it's not like everybody in the world woke up one day and said, I think everyone's wrong about Flannery O'Connor. Like, these things happen without us noticing them, right? So I think the way her reputation changed is that she had some help. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not to discredit O'Connor at all. You know, I love her. But I think she had a lot of help from um, Robert Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. who wrote the introduction to Everything That Rises Must Converge, um, when that was first published in, uh, in 1965, right after her death. And she had a lot of help from Robert Giroux. Mm -hmm. of uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, who was really, really determined to put out her complete stories in 1971. Um, he was a great champion of literature. Uh, I didn't know much about him uh, other than he was a publisher until I did the research. And when I went through the archives in the New York Public Library and got to read all of his correspondence, or, or a lot of it, and his letters about O'Connor, um, he really, really impressed me. I mean, he was, a, he was a decent man who was not looking to publish the next godfather mm -hmm. or the next love story he, he wanted to find the next portrait of a lady he wanted you know he wanted to find you know the great american authors and when he got her collected stories together you know there was no biography out about o'connor yet um she had a real word of mouth kind of uh, fan base but he's the one that that said you know she's not just southern she's american mm -hmm. and that was a big big moment in her career and uh, you know he fought to make sure she got the National Book Award after she was after she had died, and there was a rule against that. But he kind of finagled people uh, to come over to his side. So he was a real champion of hers. And I think that when when Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux put out a collected works of somebody, I mean that means something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so and then Sally Fitzgerald uh, got her letters together for the habit of being. So you can see that, you know, after her death is actually when her reputation really took off. Mm -hmm. And she ended up becoming, the, you know, the first 20th century writer in the Library of America. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, it was, a, it was a great snowball in her favor. <laughs> so her writer's reputation is not only about their writing, but about all those extra writing uh, environment <laughs> that somehow contributes uh -huh. to, the, uh, to the eventual reputation. So uh, how, uh, you mentioned um, that, argue, that uh, kind of conversation that... Uh, occurred between Sally Fitzgerald and uh, O'Connor's mother uh, over um, Flannery O'Connor's letters. How do you read that part? That was a very uh, intriguing part in your research, and uh, that was quite, quite a story that also yeah, contributed to the reputation of Flannery O'Connor. Thanks. That was that was the um, the hardest part to write. Yeah, and that was the heart of the book, and and that was something that I that hadn't been told anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was going through the letters in the archives, I, I, I'm like, I never read anything about this, and you know they're very very finicky about what you're allowed to copy and things like that. So the story of that is that um, after after Flannery died, um, 
Sally Fitzgerald was actually going to write a biography of her. Mm-hmm. And she had a fellowship from Radcliffe. Robert Drew wrote her a letter of recommendation. And so she was going to write this, this biography. Because, you know, Flannery O'Connor used to babysit the Fitzgerald's kids. Uh, when they lived in Connecticut, she wrote part of Wise Blood there. They were very good friends. So Sally starts to write work on the biography. And then she starts assembling all the letters. And then she realizes there's a great story here. Um, and that she had this great, great, rich um, life through her letters with, a, with many, many correspondents. Now, at the same time, other people had that idea, too. But Robert Fitzgerald was very tight with Sally. I mean, with um, Robert mm-hmm. Drew was very tight with Sally Fitzgerald. So he kind of worked on his end to write to universities, to find people who had the letters and got them all together. So Sally wanted to put out this edition. But she had to get the okay from Regina, mm-hmm. uh, Flannery's mother. And um, she sent her some batches of the letters and said, here's what I'm going to publish. And Sally's decision was just to publish them. I'll write a little introduction, but I'm not going to make a million footnotes. It's not. Gonna, I just want Flannery to be Flannery. Well, Regina had other ideas. And so Regina wrote back to Sally and said, um, you can publish these, but you have to change things in them. I want certain things cut out. And Sally found that exasperating. Mm-hmm. Um, Gina, for example, wanted things cut out where, you know, um, Flannery O'Connor uh, used to, uh, one line she says, oh, I had a drink with so-and-so. And, and Regina wanted that cut out. Um, there's a part where Flannery refers to her uncle by his first name, which was, you know, a, a, a normal thing for her to do. And uh, Regina wanted to change it to uncle. Mm-hmm. And all these little things like that that Sally thought would make the letter seem stiff mm-hmm. and not let her sound like Flannery. Now, Sally couldn't tell Regina that. She was very diplomatic, and she said, oh, why don't we think about this? But at the same time, she would write these venting letters to Robert Giroux, where she was like, oh, my, you know, I, I, I'm struggling here. Like, you know, I, I no one's going to, she says at one point, no one's going to cut this Gordian knot. I don't know what I'm going to do. So, if it's, uh, so Giroux kept cheering her on and saying, go ahead, go ahead. And eventually, um, rather than send Regina, every single letter she wanted to use, Sally said, let me get the whole manuscript together, then I'll send it to you and see what you think. And the whole manuscript, you know, the habit of being comes out to 600 pages. So she sent it to Regina, Regina eventually said okay. But it was really touch and go. Mm -hmm. And that book, um, The Habit of Being, that book of letters, we know so much about O'Connor from that book, but it almost didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when I did the research, I had to get permission to quote some of those letters from the various players. And I was very nervous about that because if the estate said no, mm-hmm. then there went my – I have to just describe them, you know, like there went my story. But um, I was allowed uh, to, to um, quote all the letters except two of them. Mm-hmm. So that was – I thought that was a good enough victory. <laughs> so, what's your reading of those letters? Uh, do they did they somehow change your reading of uh, Connor's works or your perception of her as a writer? Yeah. Um, well, well, like as you as it happens when you read any great writer's letters, mm-hmm. um, we we all feel lousy when we write emails and things like that. You know that she could even even in her letters, she's better than than us on our best days. You know, <laughs> um, so it certainly makes her. Um, it certainly humanizes her. Mm-hmm. It certainly gives you a uh, an appreciation for her mind mm-hmm. and for her extensive reading. Um, to people who weren't sure about what O'Connor thought about all these issues, you read the letters and they're almost like an instruction manual on how to read her novels. Mm-hmm. You know, some some readers to this day, some readers they they can't believe she took these things as seriously as she did. Mm-hmm. You know, she they can't believe that she really believed all this stuff. They can't believe that um, you know at the end of the river. When the, when the when the kid drowns, he, you know he's been baptized, so it's a it's a 
you know, quote unquote happy ending. People can't believe it. Um, but when you read the letters, it's all over the letters. Mm -hmm. uh, and you really appreciate how, um, how tough she was and um, what a sense of humor she had. And um, she's, uh, she doesn't have any self-pity. Mm -hmm. Um, she would be angry when people mentioned her, when she, you know, when she was dying of lupus. Mm -hmm. uh, Time Magazine mentioned it, and she was furious. She said, my, my health has no matter, no bearing in literary affairs. So it's really inspiring. And the great thing is it's one of those books you can open up to a random page and find a great line. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned that uh, she was somehow guiding the readers through her works. Yeah. And, uh, how reliable are writers' instructions for reading their works, in your opinion? <laughs> That's really, that's a great question. Um, I guess it depends on the writer, mm -hmm. right? I mean, uh, I mean, uh, some writers are really uh, determined to get their stuff out there and, and they'll, uh, they'll hustle as much as they can. Um, but I think, you know, she wrote these, I don't think, she did not write these with any um, forward looking to posterity, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, you know, T.S. Eliot kept carbon copies of his letters. T.S. Eliot was convinced I think that he was going to become this great author. He was going to be T.S. Eliot, right? But uh, O'Connor didn't, and they're very conversational and things like that. Um, so I think you have to take it by a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, critics contribute to writers' reputations, and writers contribute to their own reputations, either through these directions, how to read their novels, or through letters that they make public or they don't make public. Well, uh, in um, today's environment, there is another segment that somehow contributes to all these reputations, which is presented through the film industry or through online communities. So would you tell us a little bit about that film industry part in terms of uh, O'Connor's reputation? And maybe we can go on uh, talking about online communities as well, because it's a huge part nowadays that somehow Yeah. either it changes the reputation or maintains the reputation or takes it to a different direction. Sure. Okay. Um, well, the, the, the chapter I have about um, adaptations mm -hmm. concerns, concerns how do film directors and theater directors and people who write opera, how do they contribute to a writer's reputation? Mm -hmm. I mean, Shakespeare's reputation is always being, um, uh, you know, uh, fostered by the people that produces plays, right? So when I want, when I look back, well, I knew the most famous adaptation of one of her works was John Huston's film of Wise Blood. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of research on how that book was received and, and why John Huston wanted to write it. And that was fascinating. That was so much fun to learn about. Um, you know, John Huston, the great director uh, who started with the Maltese Falcon in 1941, Um, he was approached by two of the Fitzgerald boys, <laughs> by um, Michael Fitzgerald, who was the oldest son of Sally Fitzgerald, and his brother Benedict. And um, Michael Fitzgerald wanted to be a producer, but he wanted to produce something he said that would give his audience a jolt. Mm -hmm. So he talked to his brother and they said, let's, let's film Wise Blood. Let's make a movie of Wise Blood. So his brother Benedict wrote the screenplay. Who, uh, Funny, he actually ended up writing the screenplay for The Passion of the Christ, much later, another controversial film, much more controversial than Wise Blood. And so um, they got together and they approached John Huston. Now, that seems like a strange, a strange call. Why ask him? And they asked him for two reasons. One was that um, he really trusted the books he would film. He was a great adapter of films. So he did, you know, his famous films like The African Queen and The Maltese Falcon and uh, Reflections on a Golden Eye. Um, he trusted his source material. And the second thing I liked about him, and this really impressed me, was that John Huston, John Huston's films aren't about John Huston. John Huston wanted to, to, to put the camera where it belonged, 
very skillfully and tell the story and let the story work, right? He doesn't show off um, his directorial style. You know, when you watch when you watch a, a film by um, Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino was present in every frame. The same thing with Kubrick, right? Um, but John Huston wanted to put the camera there and leave it alone. And it occurred to the Fitzgerald brothers, that's the guy that should film Wise Blood. He won't try to, to, to put an editorial in it. He'll just tell the story. So they did. And John Huston uh, was an atheist. You know, he was a, a, you know, a, a playboy in a lot of ways. So he seemed like a funny choice. But he did a wonderful job. And um, he got into debates with Brad Dereef, who played Hazel Motes. Um, Brad Dereef said, you know, I think the point of this movie is that at the end, you know, um, you know, uh, Motes runs away from God, but God wins. And John Huston said, no, 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 that didn't happen. Um, but then at the end, John Huston said, I think I've been had. And so <laughs> he makes the movie. It comes out. They're waiting. And nobody knows what to do with it. It's mm -hmm. just like the original novel. Mm -hmm. So the film comes out. Everyone reviews it because it's John Huston. And critics are scratching their heads. They, they're like, why did he make this? Um, they complimented him for not making a big commercial movie. You know, because like, you know, um, Jaws had been out, Rocky II was out. So um, they complimented him for that, but they had a lot of head scratching. Mm -hmm. Over time, though, people started to appreciate it. But it was the same thing you saw with the novel, was that people um, uh, thought it was um, about country bumpkins. Mm -hmm. And so did the, and so did the um, studio. If you see the trailer for Wise Blood, you would never know about the horrors in that book. It looks like a wacky story with Brad Dereef and Ned Beatty playing their guitars. And then if you actually rent the film and watch it, you know, you'll see it's much different. So I think, um, you know, that's one way that her, her reputation got furthered. And there were other, you know, theatrical adaptations too. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's hard to film her in some ways. It's hard to film her stuff unless you, you really, um, want to just tell the story, I think. Mm -hmm. So, and, and what, um, direction do this, uh, film uh, adaptations follow that initial original reputation of Landry O'Connor as of a, uh, Southern female writer or of great American writer? What, what, what reputation is there in the first place in your opinion? I think that when, when Houston made Wise Blood in, in, in the late seventies, she was established as somebody worthy of filming. Right? Mm -hmm. it, would, it would be inconceivable to think anyone would make a film of Wise Blood in the 50s or even the 60s. Mm -hmm. But it's also because it was John Huston, and he had a lot of carte blanche over what projects he would choose, right? Um, but I think by then, you know, she was a quote-unquote great American mm -hmm. writer. And, and the poster said, you know, based on the novel by Flannery O'Connor, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, obviously um, New Line Cinema knew that you can promote this kind of literary film mm -hmm. the same way people today write, you know, based on the novel by Henry James. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to carry some kind of clout. So and she didn't have that clout in the 50s. So you mentioned a couple of times that um, when that her wise blood um, is kind of a novel that nobody knows what to do with it, or at least that was the initial re uh, initial reaction to the text. Uh, what, in your opinion, shapes that kind of perception? That well, what is it about the narrative, so to speak, that makes us think about this novel in these terms? I think it's. Um... I think people respond to all of her work that way mm -hmm. because I think we live, I mean, you know, if you live in a, in a secular society and then you read somebody like, like I said before, Elmer Gantry, everybody knows what to do with that book. Oh, he's making fun of these rubes. And, you know, you have this, you know, you have this guy who's like basically, uh, you know, Jerry Springer or something like that. So you're invited to feel superior to the characters and feel superior to the, um, the, the people the author describes. 
But when you read Flannery O'Connor, something happens where um, you you might feel superior to the characters at times, but then you find out that wait a minute, that was all an elaborate trick. You know, at the beginning of um, you know her most famous story, A Good Man Is Hard to Find, you're invited to laugh at the grandmother. She's a figure of fun. She's a cartoon character. But at the end of the story, your relationship with her is much different. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you, when you read uh, Everything That Rises Must Converge, you you feel like Julian does on the bus, cringing at the way his mother speaks and, and uh, how um, awful she is. But at the end of the story, Flannery O'Connor does her great – it's her great authorial move where all of a sudden your relationship with Julian changes because all of a sudden Julian feels guilty for what happened to his mother. Um, it happens in the violent Barrett away. You know, in the beginning, I've taught that book so many times. And in the beginning um, of the book, uh, a lot of readers think that, um, you know, uh, Tarwater's crazy. He's schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the book, O'Connor, O'Connor, uh, you know, the last scenes are like, no, he's going to be a prophet. Mm-hmm. And students mm-hmm. and people will say, a prophet, like in quotation marks. And O'Connor's like, no, no, he's going to be a prophet. He's going to go to the city where the children of God lay sleeping. So to, to, to um, read those kind of things, especially now, right, that's very, very um, – shocking for a lot of people it's 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 morally shocking and it's spiritually shocking and she knew it mm-hmm. so i think that um and that's also why in her reception people kept thinking she was a satirist she mm-hmm. wasn't satirizing mm-hmm. these things at all i mean she was she was writing about real struggles people had real crises of faith but i think that that's why um that's why people don't know what to do with her. Mm-hmm. So um, O'Connor doesn't give us that gift of certainty. Everything is uncertain right. and we don't know what direction we are guided or what direction we go. Right. Well, it's, everything, every, things might be uncertain for her except for Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, except mm-hmm. for the church. I mean, mm-hmm. O'Connor is very certain about that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but we might not be. <laughs> and so uh, when we read the book, you know, I remember the, the first time I read A Good Man is Hard to Find. And I felt I, I didn't know what to do with it. I was just like the critics. I, I, I said, who is this person? And I knew that there was something really interesting. I felt like um, in Ballad of a Thin Man, Bob Dylan says, uh, something is happening and you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt. And some people don't like that feeling. I happen to like it. You know, I, I like I like when uh, I'm challenged by something. You know, the first time, the first time you read O'Connor, the first time I was a little kid and saw 2001. I remember that that was really something. Some people don't like that. They they want answers and they want the the, the book to tell you very clearly what's going on. And uh, and uh, she doesn't do that all the time. Yeah. So, um, in other words, um, uh, either we. Um are comfortable with this sense of uncertainty or we prefer something different. Yeah. And that's yeah. how she somehow constructs her, her books. And probably um, she, she, she probably also somehow makes us uh, realize all those subtle psychological movements that um, go on deep inside our souls, deep inside of our heart. And yeah. whether we somehow comfortable thinking about all those things or we just want to dismiss and to want, want to have some certainty in life. Yeah, she says, I mean, it's, it's also not, I mean, I realize I don't want to paint her as somebody who's proselytizing through her books. I mean, she, she knows that having, having any kind of um, faith or spiritual certainty is, is difficult. She says somewhere um, in her letters that her favorite line from the Bible is, uh, um, I think it's St. Paul said, um, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. <laughs> so I believe, help me in my unbelief, because it's not like, uh, 
she she didn't think it was easy either. She mm-hmm. said, you know, um, she says somewhere that people think faith is a big electric blanket, but in reality, it's the cross. So dramatizing that in a novel or in a short story, that's, that's you know, some people don't want to go there. And that's, I understand that. <laughs> so you just mentioned that when you read uh, White Spot for the first time, you didn't know what to do with the novel. And it probably confer- <laughs> confirms that idea that books don't change, but readers do. Right. And right. the same we can say about about writers. Well, I don't know if that's right to say that writers don't change if we uh, talk about them after they pass away. But uh, right. anyway, uh, their image can be quite fluid and it can change over time as some evidence probably about their lives or about their writings appear. And of course, it will shape our perception of their works and of their personalities. Um, so maybe um, we can uh, speak a little bit about this uh, idea of um, fluid portraits or fluid images of writers in general. How How, how do you see this this aspect of reading and interpretation um, in general. That's, that's great. I mean, um, I'll be a here to myself. Not, I would say that, you know, when I thought about this a lot, not all writers' reputations are socially constructed, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not that, I don't want to, I don't want to imply that everything is, is subject to factors except the work itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like you have to have some kind of chops. You have to have some, you have to have some good stuff for people to still read your work, right? Um, there's a lot of reasons why people read Shakespeare, but one of the reasons is because he's Shakespeare. <laughs> because, you know, when you read Shakespeare, when you watch Shakespeare, he makes you think in a certain way, right? So everything's not just socially constructed. But I think that the more I've learned about this, and I would love to do this project with other writers too, the more I've learned about this, the more you see that all of these factors we take for granted are really, really important. Um, you know, you can take some obvious examples. I was thinking uh, before today about Thomas Pynchon. And Thomas Pynchon, for his, you know, no one knows what Thomas Pynchon looks like, and, you know, no one knows when his next book is coming out, and things like that. That he knows that that's affecting his reputation. So when a new book by Pitcher comes out, it's a big event. And uh, remember, a couple years ago, there was this um, this story about they, they thought he was this uh, homeless person writing letters to the ender. So that's all good. But he's an extreme case, right? So you might have other writers whose reputations come and go um, based upon um, the cultural. Uh, settings of the times, you know, mm-hmm. based upon um, who their publishers are, um, based upon obviously how they're reviewed, based upon how often they're assigned. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why everyone knows about the great Gatsby and Huck Finn is because they keep getting assigned all the time by, by professors. Um, but you also see reputations vanish. I mean, there was a, a writer, um, uh, a professor of mine used to talk about a writer, Joe Hergesheimer, who was the subject of the first PhD in American literature. Huge, huge writer, but but, um, but no one knows who Joe Hergesheimer is today. Now, how can that be? I think that's an interesting question. So it's not just social factors. It's got to be the work itself, but it's a, it's, a, it's a confluence of all those different things. So you mentioned that you would like to do a similar work on uh, other writers. Uh, what writers do you have in mind? Oh, I, would lo- I, would, I mean, I would love to do Chesterton. I would love to do how... Um, uh, you know, I, I would love to do genre writers. I think mm-hmm. I think genre writers have become really respectable. So for a long time, you know, everyone uh, everyone reads Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the big sleep gets taught in university courses, but that wasn't always the case. I mean, uh, you know, fifty years ago, um, you didn't want your your young kids reading the big sleep, you know? mm-hmm. but now you know, you're yeah. you're in high school. So I think that's interesting. Is is when did genre writing become respectable <laughs> and, and worthy of study? I think that's 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 a cool subject. Mm-hmm. So right now, when you teach, for example, Flannery O'Connor, um, 
where do your students go to get some kind of um, image for this for this writer? Is it, well, is, it, that, uh, is it online community or is it is it something yeah. different? <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a lot of it is, is what they, I mean, you, you know, I'm teaching her when I taught her, it's, you know, it's in New Jersey. So that, that, that means something different than if you teach her in Georgia, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, Northeast college kids, great kids, real smart. They've read a lot of books and they just can't believe anyone. They're shocked. Some of them are, but some of them are shocked that, um, that people really believe this. Um, so, for example, I mentioned the river. In the river, and that's a story about a little kid who um, uh, is ignored by his parents. Uh, he doesn't count for anything, we're told. And uh, he, he thinks everything is a joke, goes to see this um, baptism happening at a river, and all of a sudden he realizes that this is not a joke. And at the end he wants to belong somewhere, he, so he goes back in the river, and the river carries him away. So um, – Almost, you know, 99% of the time, my students will say, well, that's her mocking religion. Mm. Or that's Fletcher O'Connor saying, oh, look how terrible it is. And, and, and then I have to say, well, is it always? Well, well, what if he counts now? Now he goes to a place where he counts, right? If you believe in baptism, he goes to a place where he counts. And the room gets really quiet. <laughs> that's all I have to do is say that. The room gets really, really quiet. Um, so we read the violent bear away, and they're all on the side of Raver, who's the school teacher who wants to convince Tarwater that all his stuff about prophecy is is, is a hogwash. And then um, I say, okay, okay, Raver's the he's the rational one, he's the good person. But then in the middle of the book, you find out that Raver tried to drown his own son. So I say, well, why doesn't O'Connor tell you that in the first ten pages? Why does she wait a long time to tell you that? And then they start to think about that, and that's what I mean. That's what I said before. That's O'Connor's great mm-hmm. uh, maneuver mm-hmm. is that she wants her readers to form a relationship with Raber, and then she says, "Well, if you if you believe in Raber's uh, values and assumptions, then uh, you know here's what they lead to." And I just think that um, uh, you know a lot of students though they they can't believe it, and then sometimes they're like, "Can I have my paper back? I want to read my paper." And I'm like, "No, you can't read your paper." But um, but uh, it's it's a lot of fun to watch people kind of like come to an understanding about her. It's almost like um, students will do in miniature what the whole critical community did mm-hmm. since 1952. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a cool thing to see. But it's probably fair to say that students also draw on their history knowledge to read. Um, oh, sure. Okay, yeah. So and again, sure. this connection between history and literature reveals so many interesting issues that could be and yeah. can be considered while doing some research on uh, on novels or writing. Yeah, absolutely, and it has their, and it's it's just you know they draw upon their their cliches and their assumptions about the South. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. when they, they think that you know I, I'm I'm here in, in in Central New Jersey. Oh, this is these are the kind of things that happen below the Mason Dixon line. Mm-hmm. Um, but O'Connor O'Connor says all over the place in her letter. She says uh, um, she says my books aren't about the South. You know, she says when um, when you're trying to do what I'm doing. Um, it's going to have a Southern accent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she says it's going to have a Southern mm-hmm. accent, mm-hmm. but it's about bigger universal themes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. to watch people understand that is neat. And that's what the whole Goodreads part is about on the, mm-hmm. at the end of the book is watching people do that. So hopefully pretty soon we'll be talking about your new research, which is also somehow arises out of this connection between literature and, uh, and history. Well, thank you so much for your fascinating research. And thank you so much for this great talk. Great. Thank you so much. 